Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rob Fields. I'm the uh, Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for Pop Health. And I'm here with Stella Sappho, who is the Senior Medical Director for Clinical Transformation here at Sinai. Thanks for joining us, Stella. Thanks for having me. You have my, you're my daughter's name, or my daughter uh, yes. has the same name. It's so, a good um, name. <laughs> yeah, it's a good name, so I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, Stella, tell us a little bit about how you got to do this work and how you landed here. Sure. So I um, come from a family of doctors, which I'm very lucky to be able to say. My mom, who grew up in a village in Ghana, became a pediatrician and came to this country um, when we were pretty young. And so I always knew that I wanted to do medicine, but I didn't know what kind of medicine that I wanted to do until I went um, when I was in college to an HIV counseling for kids who had HIV. Um, And I realized that HIV was one of those diseases that is really sits at the intersection of social justice issues as well as medicine. Um, And so I decided then that I wanted to do internal medicine specifically for this population. Um, Went to school um, and trained in Boston and then decided that I actually wanted to come um, and work with an underserved population in the Bronx um, at Montefiore where I I did my training in social medicine and primary care. And um, after that, ended up at Sinai um, in a couple of really, really cool roles. But I think my journey to um, internal medicine, HIV primary care, was really one that was inspired both by being an immigrant to this country and my mom, um, and also, I think, by some early experiences around people who who had HIV, who just led lives that I, I knew that we could have some impact on. What about HIV? I mean, as an illness, HIV affects so many things. It affects your social standing in in many cases. It affects, um, I mean, your relationships with family and things like that. And just knowing you and how you incorporate the human parts of conditions and and how you approach things, do you think that was an influence? Absolutely. And I think it's a really good pickup that you have. I think HIV is one of those diseases, kind of like tuberculosis, that it doesn't just happen to you without a story. And I actually got into medicine um, in part because I'm really interested in stories. I always said that if I wasn't a doctor, I would have been a journalist. Um, Because medicine is one of those spaces where people come in and they tell you their stories. And through understanding their stories, you can literally help them to improve their their lives and their health care. And HIV is interesting because I think you're absolutely right, Rob. There's a way in which the kind of relationships um, lead to you having that condition. And then once you have HIV, there's a way in which your relationship with yourself, your providers, your loved ones really impacts how well you do with it. I think the other reason why I was really fascinated by HIV as a disease is because there's a way we treat it here in this country, and then there's a whole other way that it's um, treated and dealt with globally. And I'm really interested in global health, um, being someone who's from Ghana. Um, and so it's a disease that just has lots of continuities and stories, and it just it I think it it forces us to think in novel ways about how we take care of people. Yeah. So, knowing that about your background, you ended up at Sinai and started working in. How did you get into then incorporating some of that in ambulatory care and primary care? Yeah, so when I was a resident at Montefiore, I really went through it. Residency was hard, as residency is hard for most people, and I just had this feeling that I couldn't have gone through everything that I'd gone through to get to this point um, in my career just to feel the way that many of my mentors at Harvard told me that I would feel, which is that primary care wasn't sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember being a fourth-year medical student at Harvard and, and saying that I wanted to go into primary care, and people were like, 
well, that's kind of strange. Like, don't, are you sure you don't want to do a specialty? And yeah, I was I had a similar experience. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I, yes, I'm sure I, I want to do primary care. And, and by, by the end of residency, I understood some of that sense of, you know, you're smart. Don't do primary care. Mm-hmm. I understood where that came from because I saw my mentors in residency tired, overwhelmed, a little bit disenchanted with some of the work that they were doing. Um, Some of them were wonderful and were using primary care as a form of social justice, but many people, I think, were tired. Um, And I was starting to feel tired just after four years, three, three, four years of training. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I came to Sinai, the question that I had was, um, how does one survive in in primary care and deliver really, really good medicine um, and do so in a way that's sustainable? And so that kind of question and interest led me to working with different groups that were thinking about how to redesign care models and how mm-hmm. to make our care models um, better for, certainly, first of all, for our patients, but also for the people who are delivering the care. Um, and, and so my, my real drive was to figure out, is there a model of primary care that I could be a doctor in mm-hmm. that I would actually want to continue to practice in? And that's yeah. kind of what I think all the time now. I think I'll know that I've succeeded in the work that I do with clinical transformation. If, yeah, if I finish and I say, you know what, like I'm done with my clinical transformation job and I'm going to go and be a full-time primary care doctor again, right. which is what I had always thought that I would do. Render yourself obsolete somehow exactly. in this work. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, who knows if we'll ever get there or not. There's always work to do, but no, I, I totally get that. It's sort of, um, uh, it, it has to be good enough, if it, you know, for you to want to work in. It's a high, mm-hmm. you know, it's a high standard. If you have high standards for yourself and you set that in your work, that's, that's a good thing. Um, you know, I, I think one of our challenges at Sinai is that we have so many folks that have always, um, that share their time in lots of different ways. You know, some are mm. clinicians, but they also do research and they teach and you find lots of different ways of being happy, right? Uh, there's challenges in that, right? Because you divide your time. But uh, folks that are in the clinic for a long period of time, it's a pretty stressful environment, mm-hmm. um, primarily because of all the things you can't control, it feels mm-hmm. like. Tell me a little bit about um, what are the, some of the challenges that in clinic? Um, there are folks that listen to this that are clinicians, other folks that are not either in, on this team mm. or, or actually, you know, all over the place. Um, but what is it that makes it so stressful? What is it? What are the challenges? What's called, you know, what's driving some of this stuff? So I would say there's a couple of things, but I would actually start by saying that I think being in the clinic and being able to provide care for patients is truly one of the greatest joys. Um, and I have my clinic days on Wednesdays, and I look forward to Wednesdays so mm-hmm. much because it's the thing that reminds me of why this work matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I want to answer your question and definitely say all the things that make it impossible, but the things that make it possible sure. and make it so great are the things that <laughs> I have to, to remind myself of. Right. No, because I think there's something really magical. I had a patient who came in and his hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure for diabetes, mm-hmm. was 14, which is really high. The higher mm-hmm. it is, the, the worse you'll mm-hmm. do. Um, and most clinicians want you to be less than 7.5. So his was 14. And he would, and so I was, and he was, he had a lot of other medical things going on and I really did not want him to 
suffer from his diabetes that I knew that we could control. And so working with him over the span um, of a couple of months, we were able to get him down from 13 to 8. And sometimes when I'm having a hard day, I will look at those numbers for this particular patient because I feel like that there's something really powerful in that, that you work with someone Mm one-on-one with a team. You really, you get them from a place where their life is in danger with a hemoglobin A1C of 14 to a place where they can actually, you know, their their future becomes brighter, right? Mm and so those are the stories that I return to a lot because the things that make this work in the clinic hard are are pretty overwhelming and um, definitely make you have days where you think that you will not be able to do the work anymore. And I think the biggest thing is probably the time because time is a space where you realize that with more time that you could probably do more behavioral, motiv- you know, mo- mm-hmm. m- motivational interviewing with patients. You could support them more. You could listen to that thing that you know they want to tell you that they're not telling you. Mm-hmm. Um, you could pull in some of your, your colleagues, like a really good MA, who could connect with that patient around something and maybe do some health coaching that might be helpful. Mm-hmm. And without the time, you just can't do it. So I think time is something that I would definitely say that I hear all my friends and colleagues saying. But there's something else that makes me, I think, particularly depressed, um, which is around uh, patients having problems that we currently in healthcare have no language for and no solution for. So one of my patients um, who I really care about, who I haven't seen now for some time, actually, which I should be worried about. Um, he <laughs> came in a couple of months ago and he had started using cocaine again um, and he hadn't been for a long time. Um, but he started using cocaine again. I saw it in his urine when I did his urine test and I, I asked him, you know, why? And he looked at me and he said, um, honestly, sometimes I'm so lonely that that, you know, using this drug is the only thing that can help to fill that loneliness. And mm-hmm. he uses other things to fill his loneliness, like eating too much and, you know. Right. Um, and, you know, it's not an answer. Anyone can find many answers for substance use. And, you know. Sure. But there was something about the sincerity that he delivered this that made me think, so how can I now write, a, you know, an anecdote for, like, for loneliness? Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing that will heal this man. And our current health system doesn't really have something in place that – answers that and there's many examples like that Mm -hmm. you know and and I find myself thinking about this patient a lot because I know that I can solve his diabetes I can solve his hypertension I can solve we can go down the list and we can kind of check off the different things that he there is medical conditions that we can fix but I don't know if mental health can help him solve his loneliness I don't Mm -hmm. know if you know patient navigator can help him solve that loneliness and certainly that loneliness might be the thing that ends up killing him Mm Um, and so to me, those the time and then the kind of intangibles that we would love to work on are the things that I think make this work hard. Yeah. In this Mount Sinai as a health system has decided to devote a considerable amount of resources and energy into trying to address some of that and change the models. Um, how are you guys approaching that? Like, how, tell me about the the organization, what what do you do when you walk into a practice that has no idea, never heard the words tra- clinical transformation mm-hmm. before? How do you start? Yeah, so I'm really excited about this work because I think that it's a way for us to really become better partners with our patients. And I would say that, you know, if you were to ask a patient what makes the clinic tough for them to go to, they have many suggestions of things that we can improve. Mm-hmm. So we're starting with those basics. Kind of where we're starting with is really simple problems like how do we make sure that when you need to be seen, we can get you in to be seen and you're Mm -hmm. not 
waiting on the call line for a long time or waiting in the waiting room for a long time. Um, And so a lot of the work that we're doing is around getting our clinical teams that provide our patients care to a higher level of operational efficiency so that they can literally meet your needs in in the clinical space when you when you access that. But I think what's more exciting and what we're going to get to eventually is to start to think about novel ways to deliver care to people, even when they're not within those clinic walls. And so what does it look like to meet you as the patient or the consumer of healthcare where it makes sense for you, right? It might make sense for us to be coming into your home in some way, whether physically or virtually. Um, It might make sense for you, you know, depending on the kind of medical condition you have, for you to do maybe group visits in a community Mm -hmm. center. Um, And so I think this clinical transformation starts with really fixing what we have at baseline with our current healthcare infrastructure, like our clinics and our hospitals. And then it moves beyond that and it starts to imagine ways to bring health and wellness to our consumers in a way that will allow you to be really utilizing it and benefiting from it all the time. So one of what you mentioned was approaching what is best for the patients around access and creating and starting there as a, mm-hmm. as a way of focusing on the operations. I imagine if you ask providers what they think the first thing to work on would be, it might, may not always be access. How do you reconcile those needs? And it sounds like the, the hypothesis is, which is which is, makes a lot of sense, yeah, let's do what's right for the patient and re- relieve mm-hmm. some of that pressure and stress um, as, a, as a first step. But how do you reconcile that with what the providers might say is their most important list of things to work on? Yeah, I think that's a really hard question. I think... Everyone accepts that the patient needs are paramount. And so we're very lucky, I think, to work in a system where many providers will be patient to mm-hmm. take the time for the things that they consider to be their high needs um, and allow us to kind of bring in the things that will most help their patients. Mm-hmm. Um, the really interesting thing about healthcare is that if your final goal is, you know, really patient improvement, or sorry, patient wellness and patient health, you can attach and everything else kind of walks back from that. So for instance, a clinician may want, you might walk into a practice and a clinician may say, help me to figure out how to, you know, fill my paperwork more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And on the surface, that might sound like they just don't want to do that paperwork. But when you dig into it, what they want, as I mentioned earlier, is they want to have less paperwork so they have more time with their patients to be able to deliver better patient care. Yeah. And so I think that I think you're absolutely right in finding that, you know, tension dichotomy because it definitely exists sometimes. Mm-hmm. But returning back to those first principles of how are we helping our consumers and people who are utilizing our healthcare, um, I think our doctors are often really on board with that. You know, part of the the creative tension that happens uh, despite the best of intentions, right? That to your point we are lucky to be in a system where providers are very mission-driven, very patient-driven. Um, but there are certainly market forces in place, mm. specifically in terms of finances and both mac- at the macro level, how the system is reimbursed, although we're obviously in pop health trying to change that to some degree. But then down at the provider level, how they're reimbursed isn't doesn't always gel with that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the work that either you or the system is doing to try to help that way? How do we reconcile the finances of what we're driving providers to do with the work that we feel is probably best for patients? 
Yeah, I think that that's been a little bit more tough for us just because of the kind of culture behind how clinicians who are used to working within health systems and are salaried by health systems think about um, how their work impacts their pay. And so kind of in the larger world where folks are working for themselves, this kind of connection to your contracts your revenue, your salary is 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 much tighter. Mm-hmm. I think that the first thing that we're trying to do is really to do a little bit of a cultural excavation, if you will, to understand what people think now of kind of what goes into how they get their paychecks and what they understand about how much their work now um, in terms of engaging patients and working with patients and, and working on some of the things that we know we have to do in population health management, like you know coding appropriately, quality, all, all the things that we think are our bread and butter. What do clinicians now understand about how much that's connected to our ability as a health system to get paid to then be able to afford all of the different services that we'd like to afford for them and their patients? Mm-hmm. Um, I think our clinicians are incredibly savvy and really on it, that if we're able to make clearly those connections from the work that they do at the front lines to the way that we're able to fulfill our contracts, that it, it does then make it much easier for us to make, to use kind of our, our contractual understandings to push some of those behaviors. But I think that we're at a point where, you know, we're shifting from people being really pre- predominantly salaried and working on our RVU productivity basis to now really having to change that understanding slightly. Right. And I think there's a lot of work um, that's being done from the system level that I know you're very familiar with around changing compensation mm-hmm. to reflect some of the value-based contracts um, that, that, that we really committed to, to being in. Yeah. The... Another element, so we talked a, uh, a little bit about priorities and we talked about, just talked about the financing and how compensation motivates or shifts behavior towards this kind of work. You mentioned team-based care and we've had both Richie talk about clinical pharmacy mm-hmm. and Maria talk about care management. My experience with this work, as the things that you're working on now, is that while providers often agree in a conversation that they need help they're often unsure about how to mm. use the help that's given to them. Yeah. And because of their overwhelming sense of responsibility and ownership towards patient care, they are often reluctant to let go. Can you talk about how you approach that and how you have that conversation as it relates to things we're trying to offer them, whether it means care management yeah. or pharmacy? How, how might you have that conversation with a provider? So recently I've started thinking a lot about clinical care as being very similar to flying a plane. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of work that's done around how healthcare mistakes should be thought of the way aviation mistakes are thought of. Mm-hmm. And that's very true because when we make mistakes in clinical care, hopefully it has no impact on health. But God forbid, you know, you you, you make a mistake that really does impact someone's... I, I remember in residency, I made the mistake of not explaining to a patient that Coumadin and Warfarin were the same thing. Mm. And so when he got home, he had a bottle that said Warfarin. Sure. He had a bottle that we had prescribed that said Coumadin. He took both of them took and he both. came back the next week with the bleed. Yeah. And that just made me think that was an avoidable error. I own that. What mm-hmm. about the rest of the system? Let that happen that we need to avoid. And when I think about that, I think that that's why clinicians have such a resistance to... Um, team-based care if they don't trust who's on their team to get all the points right. Yep. Um, and so, you know, if I'm a clinician and patients are asking me questions in my inbox and I don't necessarily trust my MA or someone else, you know, um, to be able to kind of triage that in a way that's most helpful for the patient's well-being, I'm going to resist it. Mm-hmm. So I would say the number one thing that we really try to do within our clinical transformation work is to make sure everyone really is trained and working at the top of their license. 
that's important just to inspire the confidence. Yeah. The second part then is for us to start to kind of like in aviation, every time a mistake is made, you really you really evaluate why that mistake mm-hmm. um, is to create a culture where people are comfortable evaluating their mistakes. And so, you know, if someone um, kind of, if, if a team of an MA and a clinician, um, the MA feels like the clinician made a mistake that impacted his or her workflow, the ability to have that MA say to the clinician, here's where I think we went wrong as a team, it affected the patient in this way, how can we improve, how can we improve it? It would be great if we can get to that point. One of the things that's tough in medicine is that we are, we are higher and in many of our practices, maybe people don't necessarily feel comfortable kind of speaking in that open way. Um, but just as in aviation, one of the things that they teach is that no one, no one, uh, I forget the, the term, but there's something that's essentially like like no one is above anyone else mm-hmm. and everyone ultimately has the, the, the rank, if you will, of the pilot if there's something that's going to kill everyone on the planet, right. Right? right? And so if we could get to that sense of how do we train everyone to be excellent at what they do so we all trust each other more? And then how do we examine ourselves when we make mistakes so we can kind of write course. I think that, that it, those are the foundations for team-based care um, that I think that we would need to really start to do it in a real way. Awesome. Uh, do you, <clears throat> related to that, um, you know, if you're, a, if you're a pharmacist listening or you're a care manager listening and trying to figure out how to integrate, are there words to avoid or styles that you would, uh, you know, that you would say, you know, I wouldn't do this or that, or, or I would do this or that when you're having those first conversations with providers? Yeah, I think in general, mm-hmm. in, in medicine, we are so comfortable with jargon. Mm-hmm. And I have found, and I'm very guilty of this, mm-hmm. that sometimes, especially in population health, there's a lot of things that we say with each other and with our care management, clinical pharmacy world, that makes sense to us. And I think um, when we're at the practices, we need to really do a good job of explaining all of those terms in a way that doesn't feel like you're explaining them to someone, mm-hmm. um, but just feels like, you know, we're all kind of learning this together. And so I think that that's one of the things is to avoid lots of jargon from the get go, right. because it, it creates a barrier and people feel like they're not, they're not able to engage with you in the best way. Yeah. I also find, and this is unfortunate, but it's true that sometimes conversations that begin with costs that just start with, if we do this thing, we'll save this money, and that's the starting conversation, sometimes shut cl- certain clinicians down. Yeah, it's not how they function. It's not how they function. It's not how they want to talk um, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. It's what we need to be talking mm-hmm. about because you know our resources are finite, but yeah. I would say that those are probably um, two of the areas that I'd be a little bit careful around. Yeah, it is a little bit of a tension. Right? We're, we're trained to have... Uh, a moral compass, if you will, that is guides us to do the right thing always, regardless of financial status. And mm-hmm. to some degree, our laws support that, i.e. in TALA or other things that say, you know, regardless of, mm-hmm. of any sort of status that should be invisible to you as a provider, at least in certain contexts. Mm-hmm. Yet, uh, you know, uh, our entire systems are dependent on the fact that we at least acknowledge that there's a cost to everything we do, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a funny tension. We yeah, it's a in. real tension. Um, where uh, as we're running out of time and and thinking about closing up, um, at least this part of the conversation, uh, I I hope in a future podcast have lined up the discussion around physician burnout, and I know that it, one of the things you're hoping to get out of the work that you are working on in clinical transformation is to have an impact on that. Absolutely. If you, if you had maybe two things that you could change tomorrow that might directly impact the problem of physician burnout, 
in your work, you know, the magic mm-hmm. wand question that I tend to ask folks in these podcasts, what would those be? So I would say right off the bat would be to create the sense of a team mm-hmm. for clinicians. I think one of the things that makes this work really difficult is you feel like your patients are sick, you want to help them, and it's kind of on you. Um, but creating that sense of other people who are struggling with this with you uh I work at this HIV clinic that's amazing, and every week we have these multidisciplinary rounds. Mm-hmm. And if I say a patient's name, there are three or four other people in the room who immediately know that patient mm. as well as I know that patient yeah. and have been thinking about what that patient needs in their time of crisis, yeah. just as I have. And that feels really good to feel like you're not on your own trying to help this person. Yep. So I would say where we don't have them, really creating those teams would be helpful. Um, and then, you know, this is going to be kind of an interesting answer, I think, coming from someone like me in my role. but. Um, as healthcare becomes a little bit more standardized, you know, we're using evidence-based guidelines, which we should. We are kind of, you know, checking boxes and doing our paper performance where we should. I think one of the things that's very hard as a clinician is a feeling of loss of autonomy to really practice the art of medicine. And I think that we can really help with physician burnout if we can create spaces where people can still feel like all these years of training, all this work that they've done, they're still able to connect with their patient in a way that feels real and they're able to make decisions according to what they believe is best for that patient without having to feel like there's some prescriptive force behind them that's making them do it a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's really important because I've definitely had experiences where I'm being pinged to order a colonoscopy for a patient who will probably be gone within the year Mm -hmm. or you know whatever else it is and you can override that but that sense of of like it'd probably be easier if i just did this and 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 i think we have to create the space for that kind of autonomy and art of medicine to still be to still be maintained so those are my two things interesting i have a blog post about the concept of the art of medicine on my linkedin page that uh, would be worth discussing at some point but so that i was going to stop there but now i have to ask this question so tell me how you would define the art of medicine so, you know, I would I would define the art of medicine um, as the ability to utilize your medical training, um, your understanding of the patient's psychosocial reality and the patient's wishes to make the decisions that are best for that patient. Um, and so the art of medicine kind of argues that there isn't a right answer for everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you were to see a patient that had you know, um, you know, gonorrhea, right? You would think immediately, like, I'm going to be giving them the antibiotics. And right. then, um, but the art of medicine says, like, for certain patients, there's, like, a way in which you have to understand that patient's context enough to, um, I don't want to say break the rules, but to, to, to modulate to your care. Rules, yeah. yeah, as you need to. And, and I think I get a little bit fearful as I look at the way, and I am, you know, my mentors always remind me that in some ways I'm, like, a very young clinician mm-hmm. in my career. But, in the time that I've been doing this, I get a little bit fearful that we're moving towards a space where it's easier to conform to what we're being asked to do as clinicians. We're being asked to do a lot um, than it is to really think about what each of our patients needs and mm-hmm. requires. Awesome. Stella, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Your thank you for having me. Yep. Of course, uh, if anyone listening has ideas for future podcasts, p- please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Um, thank you and have a good week.